About 20 years ago, I heard a sermon on the parable that we're going to study this morning, and it had such a tremendous impact on my life that I still remember much of it 20 years later. I know, you know, most of you probably don't remember my sermon from last week, um, but sermons from 20 years ago don't normally stick with us, but this one did. And so I'm excited to share this with you this morning. I heard it, it was a pastor named Tim Keller from New York City, and it so um, challenged my heart in a way that I just really needed. And my prayer this morning is that your hearts, well, I pray every Sunday, but especially this morning, is that your hearts will be challenged in a way that you really need your heart to be challenged, and that you'll lean in, and that you'll get everything out of this that the Lord has for you. In this parable in Luke chapter 18, at first glance, it looks like it's a story about two men who pray two different ways. It looks, about a, it looks like it's a story about two different ways to pray. But when we look closer, what we realize, it's actually much bigger than that. It's broader than that. This is a story about two different ways to approach one of the most universal problems that we face as people. This is a problem that can drive and determine your life, your thinking, your behavior, your decisions. And it is the problem of approval. The problem of approval. Do we sense approval? Do we feel approved of? Do we feel like others approve of us and accept us? It's a problem. Now, you won't see the word approval in this story, but Luke uses a different word. He uses the word righteous or righteousness. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, one of the ways to understand this term righteous or righteousness is the word approved, to be approved. If somebody wanted to be righteous in God's eyes, that meant they wanted to be right in God's eyes. They wanted to be accepted by God. They wanted access to God. And the only way to get acceptance by God and access to God was to have the approval of God. And to be righteous was for God to look at you and say, I approve of you and I accept you. And in this story, we see two men both seeking approval. They're both desperate to be accepted and approved of because, well, we all are. All of us are. We're all, if we're honest, at times starved for approval, willing at times to do just about anything to be accepted, to fit in, or maybe to stand out, to be noticed, to make a difference, to matter, to feel like someone looks at us and says, you're good. We turn to things like accomplishments and achievements, success, wealth, beauty, long life, the American dream, fame, individualism, independence, on and on. We turn to all these things hoping that they'll give our hearts the approval that we desperately need. Many people find their approval, their sense of self, their, their sense of self-worth in the way that they dress, dressing a certain way, living a certain way, behaving a certain way. My girls and I, one of the shows we like to watch together is America's Got Talent. And America's Got Talent is this very diverse talent show where people that can sing versus people that do animal tricks versus stand-up comedians and illusionists, they go up on this stage and they present their talents. And when they go up there and there's four judges and then there's a room packed full of people, it struck me that every time someone gets up on stage of America's Got Talent, they're basically asking the room and the judges, do you like me? Do you like my talent? Is it good? Is it good enough to get invited to move forward? And each of these judges have a buzzer in front of them. And if they don't like what they hear or see, in the middle of those poor people's presentations, they buzz them. And it's like, it's shockingly loud. It's like, like really loud in, in, in the room. And, and I was just thinking like, thank God 
we don't go through life like that. Thank God that we don't all have buzzers when someone makes you dinner and you start eating it and you're like, <laughs> someone's telling a joke, someone's telling the same story for the 50th time, <laughs> you know, you're halfway through one of my sermons, <laughs> like, thank God you don't have buzzers this morning, you just got to sit there and, and deal with it. But in a way, all of us live our life on that stage, hoping that people won't buzz us, <laughs> hoping that people will like us. We also tend to look to relationships for this. I mean, everybody, you know, we want to be worth everything to someone. That's the great dream, right? Or at least, or something to everyone, or at least something to someone, right? We want to be worth. And in the end, we're not just looking for approval in other people. We're actually, and this is where it gets really complicated for some of us, we're actually trying to get our own approval, be happy with ourselves, feel like we live up to our own standards for ourselves, and yet we're all haunted, I think, with this sense of like, if people really knew me, some of the things I think and some of the things I struggle with, well, they wouldn't want to probably be around me, and they certainly would not approve of me. And so what do we do? We wear masks, we play a part, we become counterfeit version of ourselves just to get approval, chameleons throughout our lives, just so that we feel like people like us. Now, Approval is an unavoidable, sort of inevitable problem. And this story that Jesus tells, I don't know, you know, the story that Jesus tells, it, it helps us know how do we face this issue. And it gives us two different ways. And the big idea this morning is this. I don't have three points like normal. I have one big idea. And the big idea is this. You will either live from approval, out of a sense of deep approval, or if you don't have that, your only other option is you will live for approval. You will be a slave to chasing down and securing approval in every arena and area of life. Luke 18. Let's look at the story. Verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Remember, righteous can mean approved. People who trusted in themselves that they were approved of. And they treated other people with contempt. Contempt is disgust and superiority and looking down on them. And then here's the story in verse 10. It says, two men went up to the temple or into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Two very different men. The Pharisee, a religious leader, a moral man, an upstanding member of society with power and influence, the Pharisee. The tax collector would have been a Jewish man who was working alongside the Romans to collect taxes for Rome and would have been considered by most of his Jewish brothers and sisters to be a compromiser at best and someone who was looked down upon because of the path that they had chosen. Certainly morally dubious in the way that they were living their lives. And so you have two very different men. The Pharisee, he's the moral one. The tax collector, the immoral one. And it says that the Pharisee, in verse 11, standing by himself, prayed this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Can you see him, like, pointing at him? Like, even this guy. God, thank you I'm not like this guy. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. What do we have with the Pharisee? Here we have a good religious man who's trying his hardest and doing his best to honor God with his life. But isn't it obvious? He's so focused on his behavior, his external behavior. He's so consumed with the things that he does and the things that he doesn't do. In fact, he makes a list. I don't rob. I don't do evil things. I'm fair. 
I'm, I'm, I'm not unfaithful. I give and I fast. So focused on outward behavior. There's no mention, by the way, of interchange here. He doesn't say, God, I'm growing in patience. I'm finding more joy in life. Things are happening inside of me. It's all about him and the things that he has done. And it's interesting because he starts the prayer with, God, I thank you that. And normally when someone says, I thank you that. So if I went to my wife, Erin, and I said, Erin, I want to thank you that. Usually what comes next is something about her. I wouldn't go to Aaron and say, Aaron, I want to thank you. I, just, I really feel led to thank you that I am such a wonderful husband. And I want to thank you that you are highly favored and blessed because of me. And I want to thank you because, but that's what this guy's doing here. He comes to God under the mirage or the disguise of gratitude, but he's not grateful. Because people who are focused on external behavior and think that they have earned their own righteousness and are working for approval, they're not grateful. They're not grateful at all because they've done it all themselves. And he comes to God and says, God, I want to thank you that I am better than other people. Now, the main problem with focusing on external things is that while we may do the right things, we'll do them for the wrong reasons. We, we will do spiritual things. We'll show up at church and we'll give and we'll serve and we'll be religious because then we think if I do enough good things, then God owes me and he must approve of me. If I'm good enough and I behave well enough, then God must give us his approval. And I think the reason why this sermon 20 years ago hit me like a, like a load of bricks was because for most of my life, that was me. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons. I knew the game, I knew the rules, I knew how to look like a church kid, I knew the part to play, but, if I, but when I heard this message, I realized, oh my goodness, I've been doing this for approval, not from approval. I've been living this way thinking, now God will notice me, now the church will notice me, now my parents will be proud of me, now I'll be someone, and it was all about my pursuit of approval. When we're living for approval, we, we're doing stuff to try to know that God loves us and accepts us instead of believing what the gospel says. Listen, here's the gospel, that God loves you and accepts you not because of anything you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And then we respond by living a life of gratitude and worship. And if you've been saved by the grace of God and his grace alone, then all of your I thank you gods will finish with something that he's done and not with who you are. So the Pharisee was so focused on external behavior. The other thing about the Pharisee is he thought he was so much better than other people. He felt superior. He'd go so far as to call out somebody else there who's praying and say, I'm better than him. In verse 11, there's a very interesting thing in the Greek. It says that the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. And that, that by is sort of an, it's a, it's an ambiguous preposition in the Greek. And so some translations say that he prayed to himself. And some translations say that he prayed by himself. But scholars agree this almost certainly means that he separated himself from the other worshipers. He stood by himself, arguably closer to the altar, in a place where he might be seen and celebrated for his righteousness and his piousness and his faithfulness. But he positioned himself to be seen by man more than to be seen by God. And he separated himself. And as if you always think of sin in external terms only, then you always think that you need to separate and stay away from those that you judge and determine to be worse than you. And it will steal from you the very heart of the Father and the mission of the Son. You'll spend your life trying to avoid the sin out there 
all those bad people out there, people not in church this morning, people who vote differently than you, all those bad people out there, you'll spend your whole life trying to avoid them instead of realizing your biggest issue is never out there. Your biggest issue is always in here. Jesus made it clear, every evil, wicked thing flows out of the hearts of human beings. You'll look down on people it'll make because it'll make you feel better about yourself. You'll always be judging people who sin differently than you. And the reason why is because you're living for approval. Now, one final thing to notice about the Pharisee before we get to the next part of the story. And, and this is the part of the message that I heard many years ago that really rocked me. It's so subtle, and I had never noticed it before, but it's so important to notice this man's prayer, what he does at the end of his prayer is very, very telling. Because what he does for most of his prayer is he lists all the ways he does not break God's commandments. It's against God's commandments to be a robber, to be an evildoer, to be unjust, to be an adulterer. All of those things the Old Testament law condemned as sin. But then he slips this into his prayer. And I fast twice a week. Now that's a good spiritual discipline. That's something we still should do this To this day, as the Lord leads us, we should have seasons of fasting, which means we pray, we close the mouth, we shut off food from ourselves for a season so that we might pray for very specific things. But here's the point. There was no command to fast twice a week. This was a choice this man made. He chose to fast twice a week. And yet here it is in the same list with all the commands that the Lord had given What is he doing here? And this is so important. He is elevating his personal conviction to an issue of righteousness. He's not just saying, I'm different. I've chosen differently, or the Lord has led me to do this. He's saying, I'm better than people who do not follow my personal convictions. And in the Christian journey, in the Christian life, there are things that are black and white, but there are areas in our Christian life where Paul says, we have Christian liberty, There are some things we can choose, some options that we have, maybe areas of entertainment. There's some Christian liberty. What is the sort of entertainment that you take in? Not all Christians agree on that. Maybe on the issue of alcohol, not all Christians agree on that. Maybe on the issue of even um, the way in which you spend your, your finances, not all Christians agree on that. There's some areas where there's Christian liberty, but here's the danger. If the Spirit leads you to, to live out your faith in a very specific way, like the Spirit has, has, I feel like the Spirit has said to me, it is unwise for me to drink alcohol. So that's a choice that I make for myself, but that's not an issue of righteousness for me. You understand? My choice doesn't make me better than Christians who have a different liberty in that area. Now, Scripture is clear about the dangers and the sinfulness of drunkenness, but not specifically about the idea of like some people have a glass of wine with their dinner. I will not because of how I feel like the Lord's asking me to lead my life, but that doesn't make me better than Christians who will. Does that make sense? And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, I don't listen to this music and it makes me better than people who do. I don't do these sort of things and it makes me better. Again, I'm not talking about areas where it's, Scripture is clear it's sin. I'm talking about areas where we have liberty and Christian conscience to make decisions as the Spirit leads us. And this is how sort of uh, insidious this heart becomes because now we're not just better than people who sin, we're better than people who live out their faith differently than us. And that's a problem. It's not enough for him to say he's different because he fasts twice a week. No, he's not just different, he's better. He's more spiritual, he's more godly, 
he's more approved. So don't miss this. Here's what I'm saying this morning. The Pharisee, he's a good man. He is a good man. He didn't cheat. He didn't steal. He didn't do bad things. But at the end of his prayer, we'll see in a minute, he left the temple, and guess what? He was not justified, which means he was not approved. He was not right before God. Why? Because he was living for approval. And here's what it means for us this morning. This, this is the weight of the message that I've felt 20 years ago. You can be living right, and you can be doing all the right things, and you can still be lost. You can be living right, doing all the right things, following all the rules, the older brother in the story in Luke 15, but you can still be lost. Because if you make anything other than Jesus your righteousness, you're lost. Jesus is our only righteousness. The only way that we can be approved by the Father is because of our faith and trust in Jesus. However, we're tempted so often to put our faith and trust in other things, righteousness, approval. So yes, I know that Jesus did enough for me, and yes, I know the Father approves of me, but also I really feel like I need approval in this area of my life, and so I'm enslaved to my career. I'm enslaved to this relationship. You can make good things like morality or religion or rule following or ethical standards or societal or familial approval the center of your life. You can make what the people in this church think about you the center of your life, but the people in this church and me, what we think of you, that's not your righteousness. That's not the approval you need. The approval you need is found in Christ and Christ alone. His righteousness is sufficient for us. And if you live like the Pharisee, you're no closer to real righteousness. It doesn't matter how good you live. You're no closer to real approval from God. In fact, your good works become an obstacle to receiving what Jesus actually wants to give to you. Because self-salvation I'm going to save myself by being good and doing enough good things. Self-salvation is actually at its roots, rejection of the salvation that Jesus offers. And although it's a better way to live, it's no path to righteousness. It's no path to approval. We live from approval or we live for approval. Let's finish the story and look at the second man. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast. And this beating of the breast is a sign of humility and repentance. Saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And now Jesus interprets the story for us. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector left with the approval of God. The Pharisee did not. Why? Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a contrast between these two men. The Pharisee struts in, gets to the front of the room, wants to be seen, prays a long prayer all about himself. The tax collector stands at a distance, feels unworthy to come near. His prayer is not me-centered. His prayer is God-centered. He's calling out to God. Instead of thanking God for how great he is and listing off all the wonderful things about himself and presenting to God his, righteous, his righteousness resume, instead, all he uses is two words to describe himself. He calls himself a sinner. But actually, in the Greek, that, that uh, prep, not the preposition, what is it? That article, a sinner, is a definitive article. And this is what it means. The best translation for this is that the text collector said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner. This is the definitive article. This should best be translated, the sinner. Well, how does that change things? 
He's not saying I'm the worst sinner ever. But what he's doing in saying I'm the sinner and not a sinner is that he's taking full responsibility for his sin and not comparing himself to other sinners. He's not just one of many. Because when you're one of many sinners, then you can kind of figure out where do you fit in. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but there's worse sinners. And I'll give you their names if you want. Like, I know who they are. I know who the worst sinners are. But when you see yourself as the sinner, you're not going to be eaten up with what other people are doing. It won't be your concern. The question before is this morning, and I look around the room, many of you have been following Jesus for years. The question is, do you see yourself as a sinner or the sinner? Are you viewing your sin always in comparison with others and even comforted by the thought that, yeah, I'm probably shouldn't be doing that, but I'm not doing that. I'm not bad as that. And then the key, I'm going to have Antonia join me up here. The key to living from approval instead of for approval is found in this man's prayer, this short prayer where he says, God, have mercy on me. And that word mercy, we got to talk about it for just a minute. So later in this chapter, there's a blind man who's on the side of the road, and he hears that Jesus is walking by, and he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. But that's not this word. It's a different word. And in the chapter before, there's 10 lepers who cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us. Again, that's a different word than the word that Jesus uses in this parable. In fact, the word that the blind man cries out and the word that the lepers cry out, that's what we tend to think of when we think of the word mercy. When I was growing up, you know, obviously years ago, way before iPads, iPhones, stuff, we actually had to like talk to each other and, and, and play actual games. Um, and I remember on the school bus, we would, we would get playing games, but there were always these, these dumb games. And one of the dumb games that we would play was this game called Mercy. And Mercy was a game where usually two young, stupid guys would lock their fingers together and then proceed to try to dislocate each other's wrist. And it basically was whoever tapped out first said, Mercy. And you try to figure out who was stronger and, and who would quit first. And in that case, when, 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 I, when I would lose and say mercy, what I was saying is, take it easy. Let off. Uh, have mercy on me. And that's actually what the blind man and the lepers are saying. When they say mercy, they're saying, Jesus, please have consideration for our situation. Feel bad for us. Notice us. But that is not what the tax collector is praying for. The tax collector is not saying, I'm the sinner. Would you feel bad for me? Would you take it easy on me? Jesus intentionally uses a different word here. And here's what the word mercy means in Luke 18 in this story. The word mercy means atone for my sin. Atone, atonement, a payment had to be made. And so the tax collector walks in before the Lord, can't even lift his eyes, beats his breast in humility and repentance, and realizes I'm the sinner. I am the sinner. And my sin is an offense to you. And my sin indebts me to God. And my sin requires me to pay. And I don't have the currency to pay. But God, would you make payment? Would you atone for my sin? Do something about my sin. Take my sin from me. Pay the price for my sins. He's not saying, take it easy on me. Overlook my sins. Come on, I'm just a human. It's not a big deal. I'm prone to messing up. Who really cares? He's not crying out for someone to feel bad for him. He's crying out for someone to pay a price for him that he can't pay. He's crying out for a savior. And notice, he gives God no reason to do it. The other guy showed up with lots of reasons for God to be impressed. 
Hey, this guy shows up and just says, I'm the sinner. He shows up with no reasons for God to save him. And listen, one of the surest evidences that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus is that when you came to him, you came with no reasons. You didn't come trying to earn it. You didn't come trying to impress him. You didn't come to God saying, I've done really, really good, but I could use your help to get across that line of salvation. If you've really placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then at some point in your life, you came to him and you said, I got no reasons for you to save me. There's not a single reason, God, that you should save me because I'm the sinner. But would you atone for my sin? Would you pay the price for my sin? Your approval of me, God, is not based on my efforts and your willingness to pay the price for my sins is not based on what I've done, but rather my salvation is based on your willingness to give everything to have me. And then the story ends with the startling revelation from Jesus that it's the tax collector who is justified and approved. You will live from approval or you will live for approval. In closing, on the cross, what did Jesus do for us? He took everything we earned and deserved because of our sin, because we are not a sinner, we are the sinner. And upon the cross, Jesus experienced the loss of the Father's approval. He experienced separation the rejection of the Father, all the things that you and I should have to carry for eternity crushed Jesus on the cross. He took it all so that we might have the approval of the Father. And he had mercy on us. And it's not just the sort of mercy that overlooks our flaws, but it's a life-changing mercy that takes the fullness of our flaws upon himself in exchange. It gives us everything that he earned and deserved by living a perfect, sinless life. One of my favorite definitions of the gospel that I heard in this sermon 20 years ago is this. We are more sinful than we dare admit, but we're more loved than we would dare hope. That's the gospel in a nutshell. You and I were more sinful than we'd ever admit. We, none of us would walk into this building and ever admit to how sinful our hearts are. Never. And then we're worse than we even know because the Bible says you don't even know your own heart. We're more sinful than we dare admit, but we are more loved than we could possibly dare hope because God shamed and crushed his son so that we might be approved of him. You are righteous before God. You are approved because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do. You don't have to live as a slave to approval anymore. You can live from a deep sense of the Father's approval because of the work of the Son. Now, at this point, maybe you're saying, well, if we don't have to behave to be saved, which is what I was taught my whole life, then why behave? Right? What's the motivation? Well, if that's the question, then the only motivation you ever had to begin with was to save yourself. And that's not good either. Here's the motivation. Imagine the tax collector when he realized that he left that day justified. Imagine how his heart felt. Imagine how his heart was moved and melted. And the deep appreciation when he realized, oh my goodness, the Father through the Son has paid the price for me, the sinner. Imagine how changed his life was. The deep sense of approval that he was living out of. He had spent his life searching for approval. And just when all his searches led to a moment where he was certain it would bring him to ruin to admit his sinfulness, instead he found hope and approval that put an end to all of his fruitless searching. Here's the motivation. The motivation is simply gratitude that the Father loves us, that we have access to God, acceptance by God, because we have approval from the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. That's you and me. Have you found the approval 
that ends all of your fruitless searching for other approval. Let's pray together this morning.